probably the best ingredient. You could call Brian Isaac the king of the cooler. Okay, so what is Donut Factory known for? We're known for our selection. How many donuts do you have, like different flavors on it? Over 80, over 80 types of donuts. Over 80, that's a lot of donuts. All the classics, buttermilks, coolers, fritters, old-fashioned, arrays, cake donuts, you name it, we do it all. The puffy pastries get their start in the kitchen. Marcus, the man behind the mat. After they're filled, iced and sprinkled, donuts are placed in the display case. And it's not one size fits all. Okay, so what's going on here? So we have our extra large fritter. Yep, blueberry, blueberry, regular and big. They also make an adobable treat with a really cool ingredient. So I'm going to make an ice cream donut sandwich. Put a generous helping of the ice cream on the half. And we're going to do fruity bubbles. So you put a little bit just in the middle. So when they bite into it, there's like the fruity bubble there. Wrap it like a burger. And you finish it off with more topping when they open it. So it's picture perfect. There you go. It's like a donut superstore, stocked with lots of unique flavors. Whatever donut you desire, the folks at Donut Factory make you feel like family. And I think that's where we get our brand loyalty. We get a lot of people that just keep coming back, and it takes them back to a warm and you know, cozy place where they grew up. Malia Karlinski, Seattle Refine. Well, somebody say glory. <laughs> Uh, I played that because this is National Fasting Day. <laughs> no, it's really interesting. I've got pages and pages of notes here, so give me a second to get organized. Talking about national holidays, and there's a holiday for almost everything imaginable. We had Compliment Your Mirror Day last week, so I hope you had a Fonz moment where you stopped and gave thumbs up to what you saw in the mirror because you are gifted, faith-filled child of the king. And that's what God wants you to see when you look in the mirror. Um, this one is especially important. This begins today, begins National Donut Week. <laughs> so on your way out, I know this is a letdown after the video, but we have a six pack of donuts for you and want you to take one and one for your kids. We're not taking those around to Promised Land and Filling Station. Just grab one package for you and your children that are present. Not everybody on your block, all right? So just grab one. And you'll notice, just to make more sense a little bit, that there's six because that also creates the opportunity for you to share the joy. Not that I expect it'll happen, but you have the opportunity to share the joy. In fact, Donut Day is so important in the United States of America that it is on the calendar three times. There are three different donut celebrations that happen on the calendar. So I began to look that up, and they kind of run together in their, in their meaning and what they represent. But I was really surprised. I thought Donut Day would be a celebration of decadence, of uh, desserts, of enjoying the good life. And that's not at all why this day started. The first time that it shows up on our calendar is on the first Friday of June. And let me just share with you what it is intended to celebrate. In World War I, volunteers wanted to support the troops 
and were charged with preparing food for soldiers on the front lines in France. The Salvation Army dispatched more than 250 women who found that battle-tested helmets were perfect for frying seven donuts at a time. Isn't that amazing? The plan was to bring treats and supplies close to the front lines, but, as, but the closer they got to the front lines, you realize the less they could take with them, less provisions that were available. It was difficult to create pies and cakes and other baked goods that they thought they might be making. Instead, they realized the donut was a very efficient use, both of time and ingredient resources. They could make thousands of donuts in a day to feed all the men serving. So in 1938, the Salvation Army decided to honor these women who were called Donut Lassies. Isn't that a great name? Donut Lassies. With, a rec with an annual pastry holiday that would also raise awareness and money for the charitable efforts of the Salvation Army. So it was to remember those that made a sacrifice to serve those that were in service and then was a day to become generous and to celebrate the opportunity to support charities. The second Donut Day is on November 5th and no one really knows what that one represents, but the assumption is that it is so close to Veterans Day that it likely was used in the same way, but it is also used, again, to raise money for charitable contributions. And you thought it was just a day to score a free donut, but it's a day to help those that are in need. So Donut Week has another emphasis National Donut Week is also held specifically to raise funds and awareness for the Children's Trust, which is a UK-based charity to help children with brain injuries. So Donut Week started to help children with traumatic brain injuries in the United Kingdom. There are chapters of the Children's Trust that operate in the United States, and over the years it has expanded to help a variety of charities that reach out to children in need. So in all three holidays, it's not about the donut, it's about benevolence. It's about sacrifice. It's about caring for others. And I found that really amazing that Donut Lassies became the foundation for the celebration of donuts. So the next time that Donut Day rolls around or this week, I want you to think about those that sacrificed for the well-being of others. And I think it's, I think it's really reflective, really appropriate for us to reflect with a cup of coffee and a fritter what we could do to help others. Okay, that went really well. <laughs> so I want you to pick up a pack of free donuts on your way out, and you can eat them, do whatever you want with them. I will tell you that these, while not my favorite donut, my, uh, they're really great if you break them in half, dunk them in ice cold milk and eat them with a spoon. It's phenomenal. So do it any way that you want, but just a little help for you on your journey. I'm just here to help. Sacrifice and sharing is at the core of the Christian faith. Some of you will remember that we did, uh, we've done it once here, we probably should do it again, 
a rag Sunday. Does anybody remember rag Sunday? Random acts of generosity. And you're asked to be generous to someone without mentioning the church or anything about religion except to share with them that Jesus loves them and you're there to bless them. And I I know a number of people that have picked that up as part of their lifestyle. But in response to some of the things that are happening in our world today, I want to share with you what I believe is a biblical paradigm for benevolence giving for the church. I know this is controversial, and I know some of you will want to argue with me, and you need to know I don't want to hear it. Is that clear? A fair? Is it? Because what we're not talking about is government benevolence programs. That's not in our purview. And you and I may agree or disagree over the merits of welfare versus workfare, over what the government should be doing or not doing. We're not here to discuss that, except for a small segment that I'll touch on. We're really here to talk about what is the church's role with the needy in our world? What should we be doing? A biblical paradigm for benevolence giving. And here's what scripture says in the book of James. We'll focus on this single verse. Pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And I believe that that verse gives us a really healthy paradigm. With what's happened as well, I've had some questions asked about what do Christians do to help after a child is born? And I'm frankly going to tell you that I think we need to stop the lie that conservative Christians only care about birth, that we don't care about families and children after they're born. That is a demonic rhetoric to take attention away from what we do believe and what we've done. And I want to address that in this whole concept of benevolence giving. I wouldn't think it'd be a major issue, but my wife and a pastor's wife stood over here and a summons of God pastor's wife, not from Iowa, was standing right over there and politics came up and the woman, uh, the pastor's wife, a summons of God from another state said, I could never vote for Republican because all Republicans care about is babies being born. They don't do anything after the baby is born. Well, I know that you see my wife as this uh, loving, gentle hugger that greets everyone. But I'm telling you, you push the wrong button and the hair stands up on the back of her neck. And I thought I was going to have to intervene. And then I thought, why? Let's just let this unpack. Let's let this unfold. <laughs> because even in our own ranks, we are stupid enough to believe the rhetoric of the enemy and think that that applies to us. And I want to make sure you understand today that it does not. Someone asked me last Wednesday, so what do we do? And I want to share with you what we do here at Berean. I'm going to take a little bit of time to unpack that and then, and then explore the paradigm. We have a missions team and missions giving that many of you contribute to. 
And we have a grid for who we will support as a missionary. There are a lot of worthy causes out there and a lot of things that people do that might be worthy of your support. So listen to what I'm saying. You are free to support any faith-based ministry that you want to support. This isn't to tell you what to do. And if you want to channel that through Berean, I can promise you that nothing is taken for administration. It goes directly there. So how many hear what I'm saying? You're free to do what you want. But with our missions giving, we feel like there's a grid that we need to decide who we're going to support. And there are four criteria that a missionary needs to align with, at least one of the four. Number one is church planting. I believe that the hope of the world is the church. And I also know the most effective means of reaching lost people is through the avenue of a new church. When you look at an existing church and a new church plant, new churches are aggressive at winning the lost. They have to be in order to survive. And I wish it was more altruistic than that, but that is one of the elements. So we want to know if you're involved in church planting. Number two, the second marker, they don't have to meet all four, but one of the four, is Chi Alpha. I'm convinced that church planting and Chi Alpha are the two most strategic ministries in the Assemblies of God today. What is Chi Alpha? Chi Alpha is a ministry primarily, not limited to, but primarily on the secular campus. We also have Chi Alphas on faith-based campus, but the primary thrust is a faith-based um, um, club or ministry on the campus to reach lost students. Do you know that nations of the world send their best and brightest to the United States to be educated? Unfortunately, they're also filled with a pablum of liberal, Democ uh, liberal. I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. Liberal uh, politics, because not all Democrats align with liberal politics. Just want you to know that. I don't believe that you have to be a Republican go to heaven. In fact, I believe a lot of Republicans will never see heaven. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying that there is a liberal agenda that indoctrinates them. Why would we ignore that incredible mission field that we can reach students from other countries with the gospel, train and equip them, and in the United States, send them back to corporate offices, to law firms, to the medical field, to the teaching field, and send them back to positions of prominence around the world. It is an incredibly strategic ministry that we want to be a part of and support. So church planting and Kyle. Alpha. Third, they have to be involved in um, unreached or underreached people groups. Here's what I believe about missions. I believe all the easy places are already taken. There are places where it's easy to build a church or easier or easier to be a missionary. And so the easy places are taken. We want to know if our missions teams are targeting on people who have never heard the name of Jesus. Are you reaching out to unreached or underreached people groups with the cause of the gospel? What is your impact in that area? And fourth, are you involved in social justice benevolence ministries? What are you doing to make the world a better place? I believe in addition to telling people about Jesus and the marriage supper of the lamb, we need to put supper on their table today when they're struggling and in difficult places. So you have to be in one of those four areas, church planting, um, Chi Alpha, 
um, uh, unreached people groups, and benevolent social justice ministries. So having said that, I'm not going to read to you all the missionaries we support, but I don't know of a single ministry missionary that we support that's not involved in some kind of social justice benevolence ministry. You could talk to Pastor Tim and Sharon. Our inner city church pastors all over America are feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and visiting in prison and caring for the derelict. That is the heart of what they do. Every church planter gets involved in that. And every missionary around the planet that I've talked to connects with either Convoy of Hope or with their country and does something to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and make that world a better place. So I could talk about every one of our missionaries are engaged in that. And last month in April, we gave over just in April, not last April, the last month that records completed, we gave over $16,000 last month, the month of April, $16,000 in one month to support missionaries on the field. That should have got some applause. So I also want to share with you, though, those ministries that are specifically directed to aiding life after a baby is born, okay? I want to nail this down and bend the nail on the other side of the board. So I've got logos that'll go up, and I'm going to give you a brief sketch. It's going to take a little bit of time, but I really feel like it's worth it. We support monthly Highlands Adoption Services, a Christ-centered ministry dedicated to bringing hope and healing to women facing unplanned pregnancies. It serves families looking to expand through adoption. They offer consultation, support services to adoptive couples and birth mothers to include home studies, post-placement visits. They've been a part of over 3,000 adoptions and are invested in the current world with its current needs. And we have families in our church that are engaged in foster ministry and have adopted children because we do care what happens after the baby is born. Second, we support Hillcrest Children's Home, a 52-acre campus that has three primary ministries, the development of disability service. It serves children and adolescents with developmental disabilities who've been removed from abusive and neglectful circumstances. The Hillcrest Qualified Residential Treatment Program. Where do vulnerable children go from the harder places and severe maltreatment? Where do they go for health and healing? We believe that there are no throwaway children in this world, and we exist to help heal deep hurts in some of the most precious but maltreated youth. And then Hillcrest Transitional Living Center. Approximately 20 to 25,000 children will age out of foster care every year. 20% of them instantly become homeless. Less than 4% who age out will earn a college degree. 70% of girls who age out become pregnant by the time they reach 21. Um, years of age, 25% of those will age out and continue to suffer with PTSD. So this program exists to help emancipating residents 18 to 21 
with um, an excellent growth environment toward independence. Youths are ministered to, mentored, and experienced staff endeavor to teach them trade school, college education, apprentice, and career. We are helping people who age out of the system. Number three, we support Convoy of Hope on a monthly basis. Its goal is to bring help and hope to those who are impoverished, hungry, and hurting all around the world. Their mission is to feed the hungry, bring help and hope to communities that need it most. Uh, with children's feeding services, disaster services, community events, agriculture, women's empowerment, and rural initiatives. And on their most recent publication, this article was there that brought tears to my eyes. Thank to you, Rosemary no longer lives off a garbage dump. That's Convoy of Hope, and we have support going to them monthly. Agape. Pregnancy Resource Center, educational classes, life coaching, telehealth support, pregnancy tests, ultrasounds, STD testing, options counseling to help throughout the beginning stages of pregnancy all the way through the early years of a child's life. We support with ongoing parenting classes designed to fit busy schedules, everything from baby basics to discipline issues and more. Care after the baby is born. We support Caring Hands, a network of Christian churches and community partners that mobilizes Eastern Polk County for compassion and service toward our neighbors. Food pantries, secondhand treasures, the community center offers limited help as well with clothing, household items, utilities, or rent. And the supplemental regular food pantry, Daily Bread offers an opportunity to receive extra produce, canned goods, and bakery goods once a month. And they also sponsor a weekly meal for anyone who wants to come. We support the Dream Center. And the Dream Center is in its infancy stages with three primary components, Dream Kids programs with tutoring, art, mentoring, and music, community outreach with Dream Kids sidewalk, Dream Kids clothing closet, Dream Meal program, which is a Wednesday night meals and traveling food trailer, Adopt a Block, block parties, also engaged in foster care support to equip um, communities to serve and care for foster and displaced families, obviously after they're born. We support on a monthly basis Adult and Teen Challenge, a Christian faith-based residential care for young people and adults who are struggling with life-controlling issues. It consists of individual and group Bible studies, work projects, education for adolescents, recreation, and more. We support Garden Gate Ranch, a faith-based Christian organization providing safe housing and restorative and transitional services for sexually exploited women and their children. Garden Gate Ranch seeks to rally our community to ensure that all women are free from exploitation and abuse. We support Hope Ministries, been serving Central Iowa since 1915 with food, clothing, shelter, and life recovery programs for men, women, and children at seven ministry centers around Des Moines. It's rescue, recovery, and restoration. Every day, hurting people in Central Iowa without safe, stable housing. Many don't know where they'll get their next meal. Abuse, addiction, incarceration, other painful circumstances has shattered their confidence and independence. So the mission exists to rescue those who are homeless, hungry, abused, or addicted, providing opportunities for hope, recovery, and restoration through the love of Jesus Christ. We also support Polk County Jail Ministries. It exists to minister to incarcerated men, women, and juveniles and the Sheriff's Office. The Polk County Jail 
Cell Ministry ex exists to bring the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those incarcerated, to all the staff of the Polk County and all the staff of the Polk County Sheriff's Offices. The state of Iowa sees over 70% of incarcerated men and women going back to prison. Stats tell us that with faith-based method, only 6% go back to prison or jail. What a huge difference when one is truly transformed by the power of God. We also support Ruth Harbor. We provide a Christ-centered home and life skills, coaching for mothers experienced pregnancy or parenting young children. We're a community where mothers discover a life of acceptance, value, meaning for themselves and their children. In addition to support provided through mentors, host homes, and partner agencies, they offer adult or adoption counseling and parenting training. Uh, women who enter the mother-child program are giving ongoing parenting training and instruction. Young moms in our maternity program are counseled through the decisions whether to parent or place their unborn up for adoption, but it's solely their decision. Those who decide to parent will receive extensive parenting classes, life skills training to ensure that babies are well cared for after they're born. Residents who choose adoption will be well informed of their options and assisted through the process in addition to receiving life skills training, all the other services available at Ruth Harbor. Full family support. The focus of Ruth Harbor's ministry is to support young moms and children. We believe everyone thrives when the entire family is healthy. Therefore, our counseling and parenting training um, support is offered to families and birth fathers of our residents at no charge. I've just given you those that are specifically committed to social justice and to that group alone we gave in April over $2,000 just to those ministries every month. So don't tell me that we only care about babies till they're born. We care about every man, woman, boy and girl on the planet and are doing everything we can to make this world a better place. So celebrate that with a donut. I feel better. So what should benevolence ministry look like? Now for my message. Buckle in. It's going to challenge you. Number one, faith-based benevolence. By the way, benevolence ministry without a faith-based message in my conviction is enabling, it's not empowering. There has to be a faith-based component to get people out of the hole they're in. What does that look like for the church? Number one, biblical, biblical benevolence requires relational accountability. Biblical benevolence requires relational accountability. We're called to visit the fatherless and widows. What does that mean? It doesn't mean to throw money at them. It doesn't mean to go by and have coffee. The Greek word for visit means to see, to inspect, to examine with the eyes. It's not just about handing out resources. It's about getting involved with the people in their dilemma. That we're not just going to give money away. We're going to do everything that we can to walk alongside them. Faith-based benevolence demands 
personal interaction, relational accountability. We do have here a benevolence application form for those who find themselves in a difficult place. And let me clarify that this morning. We do not believe that God has called us to take care of all of the needs of Iowa or the world, but that those that he brings into an accountable relationship, we want to walk with you and help you out of your problem. So if you're just driving by and say, well, Brian, help me with utilities, the answer to that is likely going to be no. But if you want to get involved in a connect group, you want to be part of the church and you're attending here and are in relationship with someone, we will continue to walk with you to do more than meet your immediate need, but to get you out of the hole. And the application form says, what are your plans to get out of this dilemma that you're in and let us walk with you in that journey? It's not about giving out money. That's why I've never really been a fan of a benevolence fund. It ought to be part of the fiber of the general budget that when people come in that want accountable relationships. A number of years ago, when I first started this approach, we had a line where you could be helped once, but then you had to come in and we'd review your budget. And a lady came in that couldn't afford milk for her child. And then I looked at the amount of money she was spending on cigarettes. And I said, if you could reduce the amount of money you spend on cigarettes and I get the addiction we'll walk with you I get that but don't you think it's more important to cut down the amount you spend on cigarettes so you have money to buy milk is there anyone in the house this morning and I said we'll walk with you in that and she said no thank you and walked out the door because in her addiction her cigarettes were more important than milk for her child and she knew that somewhere else would give her milk I'm not going to enable you we're going to walk with you. Is anyone hearing me? We have a form. It's reviewed. We try to get engaged in people's lives. One of the things that is commonly said is that Jesus said, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. And anytime I hear a benevolence presentation, that verse always, almost always comes in and it annoys me because it's taken completely out of context. Now, I will establish that we are to meet the needs of needy people and that God cares about that. But the idea that we're to feed every hungry person and clothe every naked person and solve all the problems of the world isn't biblically sound from Matthew 25. What is the context? The context of Matthew 25 is the judgment of the nations when the millennial kingdom is established. It's not a model for benevolence. And he's saying that the nations will be separated into goat nations and sheep nations based on their treatment of the nation of Israel. And those that treated Israel with care will be honored and those that don't will be judged. And even if you reject that eschatological understanding of the text, then you have to also read that Jesus said, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, who are his brothers. Do you remember in the gospels when his mother and brothers came and wanted to call him out to talk to them and he said who is my mother and who is my brother but those that do the will of my father which is in heaven so Matthew 24 is not about indiscriminately throwing money at a problem because someone has a need it's about recognizing that there will be an eschatological responsibility for how the nations of the world have treated God's chosen people and that we have a responsibility first of all to minister to those that are least within our own families. The Bible tells us that as we have opportunity, 
We should do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith. And James says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about physical need, what good is it? In some way, faith, in the same way, faith by itself, not accomplished by action, is dead. So we are to minister to needs. And I'm suggesting to you from those scriptures that benevolence begins relationally. And my challenge to you is this. Who do you see and who do you know that's in need? Engage them. Share Jesus with them. Help them get out of their trouble. Here's what happens. Are you ready? I don't want to make you mad, but I want to clear the air. Somebody sees someone in need, they send me an email and says the church needs to address that. No, if you saw the need, you need to be the first one to address it because Jesus put it in your lap to create a relational accountability with someone you know, get alongside them, love them, care for them, share Jesus with them. And if that load gets too big, come to your connect group and they will help you, which is a culture that is being created. And if it gets too big for the connect group then bring it to the office and we'll jump alongside and help as well because relational accountability doesn't begin from the pulpit or the boardroom it begins in your neighborhood when you get to know your neighbors are neighboring them and loving them and caring them and you give them food you give them help you walk alongside them because the first mark is relational accountability the second mark is legitimate affliction the fatherless and widows. Biblical benevolence is not based on perceived need. You're not going to like this, but we'll have ice cream in a little bit. <laughs> Ready? Not everyone who thinks they are in need are truly in need. There are a number of manipulators out there. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard that cannot possibly be true. <laughs> Often, someone will call and say, hey, I, I'm in trouble here. I'm in a difficult place, and I grew up as someone of God. In fact, I've, I've met Doug Clay. <laughs> and come up with this fanciful story. I could go on and on with those, the manipulations that happened. In fact, one guy called me, middle of the night, broken down, goes to an Assemblies of God church in Chicago and said, just a minute, to confirm this, I'm going to have your past, my pastor call you. Ten minutes later, my phone rang, and I'm telling you, it was the same guy trying to change his voice. <laughs> Hello, I'm pastor at New Life Center in Chicago. I could go on and on. Not everybody who says they're in need are truly in need. Some are trying to manipulate the system. God cares for the fatherless and widows. In Psalm 35, my whole being will exclaim, Who is like you, O Lord? You rescue the poor from those who strong for them, the poor and needy from those who rob them. In Psalm 68, sing to God, sing praise to his name, extol him who rides in the clouds. His name is the Lord. Rejoice before him. Who is he? A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. He is the ultimate source of supply. 
multiply. He loves the down and out more than you and I will ever understand. And the fatherless and widows in New Testament times were people without any resources. There wasn't a safety net for social dysfunction. There was no unemployment. There was no welfare for someone to lose. The primary caregiver and breadwinner of the family meant that many times there were no resources available to them. So he says, go examine, visit relationally accountable, fatherless and widows, people that are in legitimate need that are without resources. One of the things that we require in our benevolence form is what resources out there have you already reached out to? Because I believe you, people will say to me, well, the church shouldn't rely on government, uh, uh, government uh, support for need. Are you crazy? It's one of the reasons God hasn't burned America to a crisp is because we provide, over-provide. And I could have a discussion about, with you about that politically, whether it's done in a right way or wrong way. But I'm telling you, there are hundreds of thousands of dollars available in Polk County alone for people that are in need. And we're gonna take advantage of that. Where have you looked for support? Because we're not the first line, we're the second line of defense. If you fall through the cracks, we wanna walk with you. But again, we're gonna walk with you in an accountable relationship. And it's fatherless and widows, those who have have no other means of help. We minister relationally to those who are destitute. So what is legitimate need? If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. That's scripture. I didn't write that. I'm going to get a little political. Sorry, I'm trying so hard not to. But this era in American culture is being known as a great resignation. We have fewer and fewer people willing to enter the workforce and do a job. And one of the reasons that is demonstrable is the more money you give without responsibility, the less likely someone is to want to work. If you're going to give me a free pie, I'm not going to give you money for it. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And the Bible draws a line for that and says, if a man is able to work and doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. If a man doesn't provide for his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So those that are simply not willing to do their part aren't deserving of biblical benevolence. It's fatherless and widows. What does the word mean? It refers to oppression, affliction, tribulation, distress, pressure. The same word is used in Matthew 13, but since he has no root, the plant, when trouble or persecution comes, that's the word affliction. Matthew 24, you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. That's the word affliction. Matthew 24, 21, then will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world till now. That is affliction. Jesus said, I've told you these things so that in me you have made peace. In this world you'll have trouble. That is affliction. So it's talking about so much more than putting food on the table. It's talking about those who are destitute are in a place where they're likely to be persecuted, oppressed, taken advantage of, and we're not just 
just meeting financial need. We're going to walk with them to drive back the oppressor, to hold back persecution, to let them know that they're not alone, that we're walking with them arm in arm, and they have a family, that the fatherless will find men in this church who will walk alongside them, that widows will find families that will walk alongside them and provide them support. And we do that in so many ways, in so many ministries, that we want to engage people who are in genuine need and walk with them and not enable those who are trying to cheat the system. Visit them in their oppression, persecution, and distress. So third, biblical benevolence relies on biblical alignment. (laughs) Oh, hang on. Is the back door open if I go out that way? Is that (laughs) I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just saying we need to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. What was the church commissioned to do? Not go into all the world and build food pantries. Not go into all the world and build clothing pantries not go into the world and establish welfare systems. Jesus didn't build a pantry, a closet, um, a system of any sort. He said, the poor you will always have with you and there'll be a time to minister to them and we should. I've already established that we should in biblical context. What is our calling? Our calling is to take the good news to every creature, to win men and women to Jesus to win men and women to Jesus because that will change their life. Do you know what happens when a selfish man finds Jesus? He becomes the father of his household. Do you know what happens when an abusive man finds Jesus? He stops his abuse. Do you know what happens with an alcoholic mom finds Jesus? She finds a way out of her addictions. Is anyone hearing me? When you bring Jesus in the home, the social construct changes and when the social construct construct changes, the economic construct will change as well. I had a discussion years ago with a missionary and living, he was serving in a place of abject poverty and they were living in a house and they had a couple of servants and, they, and it was gated with barbed wire across the top. And I said, how in the world do you do that? How in the world do you do that? So much need all around you, so many hungry people. I can't imagine if I went there in the middle of that, I'd be as poor as they are. I'd give everything away. I don't know what I would do. How do you do that? And he said, well, let me explain some things. Number one, if everything we have is stolen, we'll have nothing to do ministry with. We have to protect our space. Number two, every servant we employ puts food on their table. And they're not slaves, they're household um, workers that we pay money to. And then he said, and here's what I know, and I've seen it again and again and again. When you lead, this is his words, not mine. When you lead someone in this broken world, he said, I can't change the government. 
I can't change their economic system. I can't change anything that's put them in this place. But when they bring Jesus into their house, I've watched it again and again. They meet Jesus. They begin to tithe with what little they have. And without fail, their economic status will start to rise within the context of their environment as a testimony to what Jesus does when you follow him. I don't feel guilty at all. I'm here using my resources to lead men and women, boys and girls to Jesus and watching their social uh, relationships and their economic status rise when they find Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that's true cross-culturally and um, uh, 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 cross-ethnically. It's true everywhere. Evangelism is what will change the world's needs. Second, there are consequences to evil choices. God intends for there to be negative consequences for sinful behavior. He intends that. He wrote that. And when we undo the consequence without undoing the, the, the journey, we have undone the very thing that is intended to bring them to the gospel. I read part of a verse from Psalm 68. Let me read the rest of it now. Sing to the Lord, sing praise to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord and rejoice before him. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He sets forth prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. That's the will of God. Eternal death is a reality. I learned this in the first church that I pastored. There was a young man who attended our church on occasion. His parents attended. And he decided because he was 18, he was an adult. (laughs) You are not an adult because you're chronologically 18. You're an adult when you pay your bills have your own place, and are financially independent from your parents. Otherwise, you are still a child. Give me 18. Oh, how'd I get off on that? Biblical benevolence. You love children when you teach them there's responsibility for their choices. Privilege without responsibility corrupts. So, he wasn't going to obey his parents' wishes And he was stomping and snorting around. And I said, look, it's Sunday night. I was tired. It was late. Tell him we'll put him up in a hotel in town and I'll deal with him tomorrow. So they told him that. It's my house. I can stay here. No one's going to make me move. And I was younger then and a little more brash. (laughs) I heard that. And I said, then kick him out. He's our son. Right. And you raised this monster. So now it's time to make him accountable. Kick him out. What if he won't go? Call the police. He's 18, right? An adult? You can kick him out. Uh, What if he comes back? Change the locks. Do whatever you have to do to get him out of your house. I'll come over if you need me to. And they said, no, no, we'll do it. And they did. They told him, and uh, he, they threatened to call the police. So he left thinking he'd be able to stay overnight at his girlfriend's house. Mom met him at the door and said, you're not staying overnight here. She didn't like him anyway. So guess what? 
big tough guy did? He slept in the grass outside his girlfriend's bedroom window all night. And when he woke up with dew on his brow, he was much more malleable. You say, that was mean. No, that was godly. Because the goal was life change, not immediately solving a problem. Anybody hearing me? I'm saying there are consequences. God intended them. I I remember a family member some years ago, another family member called me and said, we've got a family member that's kicked out of their apartment or their house or whatever, and they're going to be sleeping on the street, and you need to do something about it. And I said, no, I don't. Let them experience the shelter. Let them experience the consequences of the behavior, and then we can chart a new course for them. Is anybody hearing me? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If he sows to the flesh, he will of the flesh reap corruption. And so our biblical drive needs to be that evangelism changes lives. Let's get the gospel to them and watch their entire world be transformed. You've heard it said, Give a man a fish and you teach him to eat for a day. Teach a man to fish and he will eat for a lifetime. Well, let me ask you, what good is it to help a man live for a li- eat for a lifetime if he's going to hell? We need to do more than that. We need to do more than meet temporal need. We need to also reach spiritual need. Now, here's what I know. It's hard to hear the gospel when you're starving. So let me give you the other side. Children sometimes suffer the consequences of ungodly choices by their parents. We had a bunch of kids that we were bringing in on vans, the previous pastorate, that were just out of control. I've shared with you this story, and I am wrapping up. I'll be done in just a minute or two because I know you want ice cream. But he was, they were just out of control. And I've shared with you about the van story that I said, what do you mean you can't drive the van with these kids eight blocks? What are you talking about? You try it. So I went out, one was on the van, one was on the back of the van, one was under the van. And then there, I get them all in the van. Another one gets out and is on top of the van. I get them in and I'm getting really ticked off. And by the time I get to the edge of the parking lot, they're screaming and fighting, poking, punching. And I screamed at the top of my lungs, shut up. Hallelujah. One of them, it's silence, and one of them looked at me and said, you know, I think he's mad. <laughs> Would have been fair. Got them to their place. There's a crazy man driving around. The police had me block the drive with the church van. Long story there. But I remember one, uh, one Wednesday night I went down, and one of the kids was just totally misbehaving. And I thought, you know, I think I can talk to them. So I sat down beside him, and I said, you little brat. No, I didn't either. <laughs> I said, look, this is a privilege for you to be here. And we want to help you, and we're glad you're here. And he's staring at me. He's just staring, looking at me and watching me talk. And I, th- and I thought, he's listening. You know, when the frequency is tuned in, pour in as much as they'll hold. And he's just looking at me, and I'm going on. I'm waxing the elephant. I mean, I'm telling everything that he should hear. And finally, he just, I take a breath, and he said, do you know there's hair in your nose? So I was sharing that with my wife, and she said, you know what I think? I think those kids are coming on Wednesday night starving. They need a whipping. And she said, they need a meal. 
we started feeding them celery and peanut butter, cookies and a sandwich, something simple. And you know that discipline problems dramatically plummeted when they had some food in their belly. I get it. It's hard to talk to someone about heaven when they're starving to death on earth. And there are times we need to come alongside and say, we want to share the gospel with you, but you can't, you can't be sleeping on a city uh, steam grate and be okay. Let's get you in a warm place. Let's get some food in you. And let's begin to talk to you about what Jesus can do to change your life. I get that. We have done that. I believe in that. But it's not enough to feed and clothe. We've got to get them to heaven. Come on, we've got to get them to heaven because that changes everything. So this week, when you have a donut, what are you doing to change the world? I've read to you what we're doing as a church. What are you doing for people that are in need? Maybe you should give more to missions. Maybe there's a neighbor you need to invest in, one that you need to talk to, to risk. We cannot, listen to me, and I'm, I'm just about done. We cannot pat ourselves on the back because we simply throw money at a problem. That's what the government does. What do we need to do? We need relational accountability. We need to determine legitimate affliction. And we need biblical alignment. So would you stand with me? And I want you to think about this while we close. your network of friends, work, social contacts, who in your network needs someone to be Jesus to them? What might happen if this week we decided to be the church to people in need and extend biblically driven benevolence that points them to Jesus? That's who I want us to be. It starts with you, then goes to your connect group, then goes to the larger body because it's personal interaction, one-on-one, that's gonna change our world. God, speak to us today. Who do we need to touch for the kingdom? There is a name I love to hear. Oh, how 
died and set me free Oh, it tells me of His precious blood The sinner's perfectly Come on, sing it out this morning So during Donut Week, I'm going to ask one thing. I'd, I'd ask you to look at your missions commitment. And by the way, if you're not tithing, don't give to missions. Tithing is where it starts. That's foundation to everything. Start tithing. Um, but increase your missions giving. That is a good thing. But would you pray this week, God, is there someone in my network that I could extend the hand of biblical benevolence and bring them to Jesus? Amen. Just ask for that. If you love Jesus, let me hear your hands. Thank you for your faithful giving, your investment, what God's doing here, Brian. We're trying to do the best that we can to fulfill his purpose, and your giving makes that possible. So make sure you go out on the parking lot, enjoy Super Sunday Family Fun Day, a free entree and a free dessert are yours if you get a ticket, and then you can buy as much as you want. God bless you. Shake someone's hand and take him out for ice cream. And make sure that you pick up a pack of donuts for you and your kids. Get your pack of donuts.